And let me pray. Our Father, we praise you for your kindness to us. You are a good and loving God. You show your kindness in creation as we sung about today. We'll hear about a little bit later as Chuck preaches. We have no reason to fear because we know that you've created all things and you are in control. You caused the rain to fall. You've given us the beauty and variety of your creation that we can see and enjoy. You show your kindness through the author of creation, your son, Jesus. We praise you for the gift of Jesus, who is fully God and knowing no sin, became man, took on our sin, died a sinner's death, that we might have a right relationship with you. You are a good and loving God, and we offer our praise to you this morning. We also praise you that we can share the good news of your love with others, both here and around the world. We pray for the effective ministry of our gospel communities as they reach out to those around us, as we reach out to those who are in our ability to influence. We thank you for the missions team that just returned from ministering to our longtime church members, Tim and Susan Kinney, in Southeast Asia. We pray for the group of college students who are seeking to look outside themselves by sacrificing their spring break for you this next week. We pray for the missions team that's forming to support church members Patrick and Becky Patterson as they serve in East Asia. We pray for that ministry to be effective as they reach out to people who don't know you. May the GCs and the college group that we're sending out locally, as well as those who are being sent out internationally in this next week, next few months, that those would be used to reach more people for the gospel who will in turn glorify you. And now as we turn to your word this morning, we pray that we would be attentive hearers and attentive doers of your word. May it penetrate our hearts and minds as we seek to make you the center of our lives. And may we as your people live in freedom from fear as we live our lives in response to all that Christ has done for us. And now, Father, may your word be exalted and our response to your word be an offering of praise to you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you, Ted. Good morning, everyone. We have just uh, completed a series of uh, talks that God seemed to use in a really significant way. It turns out in conversations that I've had with many of you that many of us, maybe the majority of us, we could say, have personal and intense ongoing battles with fears of different kinds. Fear and all the havoc that it causes are behind many of our daily struggles. And collectively, we experience God's grace together as we seek to live in light of what he's taught us through those sermons. So in that series, which we called Living Water, we attempted to show the different expressions of fear and the effects they have on our lives and how living in light of what Christ has done for us brings about a a better way of life than those fears can provide, of course. Last week, Tad, who just prayed for us, wrapped up that series by describing the antidote to fear, which he said is trusting and loving God and loving people. So there's fear on the one hand, and there's trusting and loving God on the other. We were scheduled to start today into what was going to take months of walking through verse by verse, chapter by chapter, a a large section of the Gospel of John. But really, as a result of what we saw God doing in that series, we have um, adapted the plan a little bit and are going to spend the next six weeks trying to build upon what we've just covered together. The way we typically study the Bible together here at Church on Mill is to walk through a Bible, a a book of the Bible, walk through the Bible, that's good, right? Uh, To walk through a book of the Bible thought by thought, because that helps us as a church family over the long haul to really base our lives on the scriptures, not on particular issues. And um, so very often what we'll do is just go, for example, through John 13 to 17, which is what we'll do after this series. But as an adjustment to what we've seen God doing, we're going to uh, look today, starting today at something we're calling uh, the story. So essentially what we want to do over the next six weeks is cover the entire Bible. How does that sound? Great. We're going to do that. So we're going to look at themes. This is called biblical theology, for those of you that care for the academic term. We're going to try in six weeks to span 
the entire dominant story of the Bible. And the reason for that is I can put in a sentence, and this is what we'd love for you to walk away with in the next six weeks. The more we know God and his plans, the more we'll trust and love. The more we're familiar with and understand God's character and what God is doing in the world, the more we'll be able to be people who exhibit and live in that trust and love that Tad talked about last week. So if the antidote to fear is to trust and love God, then it would make sense that our trust in God is only going to be as deep as our knowledge of him. And not just knowledge in the sense of head knowledge, but actively trusting in, putting our hope and faith and confidence in that God. And that will produce love in our lives. So wherever shame and greed and worry and selfishness, apathy and hurry rear its ugly head, we can be sure that fear is nearby. Correct? Fear's like mold. It grows best in the dark. The best thing to do with fear is to bring it out into the light, to talk about it in community, to share it with people in your gospel community, to admit it as sin to a brother or sister in Christ, and then together to expose that fear to the character of God as we see in Scripture and ask which one is more like reality, the fear that's creating a particular way I'm looking at the world or the God of Scripture as he reveals himself. And then to pray about that together and to cultivate trust in God's love. We'll find that as we do that, most of our fears are often merely expressions of unbelief and disordered loves. Loving something more than God. So say, for example, if you're a chronic worrier, that's not any of you in the room, right? Right now you're worried that I'm going to point you out, you worrier. It might be that you worry because you trust yourself more than you trust God. It might have very little to do with the actual circumstances of your life that cause worry. It might be that the way through which you look at life is that now your your mouth won't say this, but your heart may reveal it. Your worries may reveal it, that you trust God less than you trust yourself. Maybe you struggle to believe that he'll really come through because somewhere along the way, God didn't do what you thought he was going to do. Therefore, it's hard to trust him. Is that truth for any of us? Probably. So moving from worry to faith is a movement from fear to trusting and loving God. And our ability to do that is going to be directly tied to our understanding of what he's doing in the world. And so what we want to do over the next six weeks is simply say, what does this book tell us God has done, is doing, and will do? Of all the hundreds and hundreds of stories in the Bible, each one is in the scriptures in order to give us an answer to that question or to help us understand what he's doing. So our prayer for the next six Sunday mornings, if I could put it in two sentences, would be this. Father, you are good and all-powerful. Please enable us to trust and love and obey you. I wonder if we could pray that together. Would you pray with me? Father, you are a good and all-powerful God. We would pray that as we look at your story that the scriptures teach us, that we would see that it's a true story and that we would live in light of it, and that we could be encouraged, inspired, convicted to trust you more than we trust ourselves, to put our confidence in you rather than in ourselves, to love because you first loved us, and that as we engage your scriptures in that way, that your spirit, for example, would bring a calm and a peace to our worries. Because we would find that we're living more out of trust and confidence in you than in ourselves. And that's certainly a better way to live and a way in which we can think about all of our fears. Help us, Lord, to see reality for what it really is. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.
Would you turn with me to the very first chapter in the very first book of your Bible, Genesis chapter 1. If you do not have a Bible of your own, there should be one somewhere around you in the uh, racks underneath the chairs. Feel free to turn there. It won't be page 1, but it will be close to page 1. So Genesis 1, 1, and we'll start reading from the beginning in just a minute. Friends, you and I are all living out what we might call a story. All of us, every day, have some lens through which we look at life. Because we're human beings, we're hardwired to ask particular questions. Questions like, where did I come from? Why am I here? There's an awful lot of pain in the world. What went wrong that brought that about? What will make things right? What am I here to do? These are questions that every person in every culture in some way, shape, or form asks in their life. Educators, philosophers, and theologians historically referred to these questions as your worldview, meaning simply your collective answer to those questions shapes the entire way in which you think about life. That term has become kind of passé. Today, it's a lot more common to hear people talk about that as a meta-narrative. But the point is the same. Your sense of reality, the, the glasses, if you will, upon which you look at life are your answers to those questions. The very lens that causes you to make sense of something as big as why the universe exists and something as small as what you're going to do this afternoon are all driven entirely by how you answer those questions. Story shapes every day of our lives. Countless stories are told. Societies and cultures pass on their history and their values by telling their particular story. Your family of origin has a story. You have a story. So what I'd really love you to consider today is, is your story true? Is it factual? Is it rooted in reality or is it a fairy tale? Is your story about you or is it about God? Well, the Bible tells the complete story of humanity. And there's probably people here today who would not agree with that. And we're thrilled that you're here. Every Sunday, there's lots of people who gather to worship and gather to learn more about what the scriptures would say about Jesus but who are people who have yet to become Christians. And we're glad that you're here. I want to lay all my cards on the table, if I could, and say that I believe with all of my heart and mind that what the Bible says is truth. And our encouragement to you would be to give the Bible a fair hearing. And I'll imagine what happens is as you do that, over time you'll find that it's speaking truth. The Bible records the accurate, historical account of where we came from. It is not a book that merely tells likable stories upon which there's truth that comes alongside it. It is a book that tells us what has actually happened. It explains what went wrong. And it doesn't sterilize the characters in the story. We see them in moments of triumph and in moments of utter defeat. Sometimes one day followed by the next. It gives us an accurate and truthful account of how things really are in the world. And more importantly, it tells us why they are that way. It declares how things can get put back together again. It gives us hope for the future and brilliantly describes where the universe is headed. It tells us why we're here and what life is really all about. And perhaps more importantly than anything else, it authoritatively discloses who God is and what he's done for us in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Of all the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of stories in the Bible, that is what the Bible is doing. They're not a disconnected series of events. They're rather an intricately woven series of stories that tell us one story. And this story, my friends, is not a blind leap of faith, but it describes a God who gives us reality with precision and accuracy and love. And what we'd like to say in this 
story is the more you're familiar with it, the more you'll be shaped by it. And the more you're shaped by it, the more you'll trust and love God. And the more you trust and love God, the less and less fears will be what your life is ultimately based in. The more you delight in God, the more you'll move from fear to faith. So over the next six weeks, we're going to cover six different topics. We're going to look at creation, fall, promise, redemption, church, and restoration. Creation, fall, promise, redemption, church, and restoration. Will you do those with me? Creation, fall, promise, redemption, church, and restoration. Our hope is that this isn't the first time you're hearing this. And our second hope is that we as a body, as a family, could become so familiar with this story that you could sketch it on a napkin with a friend at Starbucks and that you could relate what he or she is experiencing in life to the story of the scriptures. Because we would believe this isn't just the story of the Bible, but it's the story of the Bible because it is the story that is the true story. Wow, that was awesome. What was that? What was that? (laughs) Helen says it wasn't me this time. Awesome. I'm not sure how to follow that up. God's invitation for you in this series, is not merely to learn facts or truths. It's to come face to face with Him. This story is your story. And it's either your story in you agreeing with and living out these truths as the Scripture reveals them, or your life is a tangled mess Because you're living out a broken version. You have no choice. That's what you'll do. That's what it means to be human. What it means to be human is to have some version of where you've come from. That's creation. It's to have some version of what's wrong with you and with the world. That's fall. It's to have some hope of what will make things right again. That's promise. It's to have something that you're putting your hope in that will actually fix you. That's redemption. It's to have some version of between now and then, what's life going to look like? That's church. And it's to have some ultimate picture of when everything is put back right together. What's it going to look like? That's restoration. Every single person you will ever meet has some answer to those six things. They don't think of it as churchy. They don't think of it necessarily as scripture. But they've got some answer to that. And if you could begin looking at every person you ever meet as having some answer, some idea, some crafted world view that's built out of those answers to those questions... Suddenly, the whole world opens up as an opportunity through which to speak about God. Not in a um, forced, archaic, weird kind of way, but in a way in which you can pick up that napkin and say, hey, I'm hearing you articulating that this next job you want to take is going to give you hope. Or that that new apartment you're going to move into is going to be, finally I've arrived. Or that new person that you long to be in relationship with is going to bring things back together for you. Or if you only had a dad, then things would be well with the world. You hear it? It's every conversation you ever will have with anyone. And I don't use that as preacher hyperbole. I actually believe it. So we're going to start with the first one, creation. Where did we come from? How did we get here? What are we here for? That's what Genesis 1 and 2 say. So let's look at verse 1 together. In 
the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. The earth was out without form and void. The darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. If we took the time to read the rest of the chapter, what we'd see is in successive days, Genesis 1 describes the rest of creation. And Genesis 2 then expands in particular detail aspects of Genesis 1. These are the opening words of the Bible, the best-selling and most widely influential book of all time. According to the Bible, this is how the story inaugurates. In the beginning, God The Bible starts with God. That should tell us something. God has center stage. God is the hero. God drives the action. God is in control. The story is about God. Now, interestingly, the scriptures do not utter a single word anywhere attempting to prove God's existence simply declares that he is. It doesn't answer the question, how do we know that? It takes it as fact. It assumes it to be true. Now, for the most part, atheism, the belief that there is no God, is a quite modern idea. Most people throughout human history have believed in God or gods. The Bible says that before there was anything else, there was God. And that's all it says. And most people have believed that. Now, that, of course, doesn't make it true, right? But it does say something to those of us in the room who would say, I know that there is no God. The question might be for you, how do you know that? Just like we'd have to ask to those of us who believe there is God, how do you know that? The Bible gives all kinds of inferences all kinds of examples, all kinds of illustrations, but it does not give us a verse that says, this is how I prove God exists. An assumption exists in some circles today that science and religion cannot coexist. How many of you would have heard that in the last week, month, year? All of us. Now, maybe not in that terminology, But we've come up against a worldview that says science is God and God is God. And those two things clash in our particular corner of the world quite often. Much of modern scientific thought claims it is superior to and incompatible with Genesis 1 and 2. And so what I find pretty interesting is that that is hardly ever actually talked about in this setting. That is nothing we need to be afraid of. So I want to take a couple of minutes today and try to speak to that issue. Um, ASU students, all three of you over there, (laughs) you may be told on the campus, not this week, but next week, that you have to choose between faith and reason, that you cannot have both, that faith requires a checking your brain at the door and then entering the realm of belief, whereas reason is all about fact. Our purpose today is not so much to debate that issue, but just to make a few introductory comments about it, if we could. I'd like to do that through organizing a few thoughts around two comments that D.A. Carson makes, who's a great author. I'd encourage you to read anything and everything he's written. That would take you the rest of your life. Here's the first comment he makes. There is more ambiguity in the interpretation of these chapters than some Christians recognize. I could say that again. There is more ambiguity in the interpretation of these chapters than some Christians recognize. Now, there's a reason I would appeal to him as I start down this path. Um, That's because I'd like to still have a job when I'm done. You'll understand what I mean when I'm finished. 
Genesis 1 and 2 say something, correct? They say something. There's words there. But what does it mean? What is it actually saying? What reality do the words point to? What are they meant to convey to us? That particular question is far from a slam dunk. Genesis 1 and 2 are actually pretty complicated writing. But they say something. So what Carson is getting to is this fact. Some Christians interpret Genesis 1 as describing literal 24-hour days. To them, this passage says that God created the world in six 24-hour periods of time. Are you with me? All right. Often, those same people will say the earth is about 4,000 years old, or the history of humanity is about 4,000 years old, but everything is built by God to look like it's much older. So that's a very, very common thought among Christians. Other Christians will say that the word day in Genesis 1 and 2 represents a period of time. They'll say something like age or epic or era. So in other words, they will say Genesis 1, the passage we just read, let there be light occurred in some big period of time. And the Hebrew word for day can mean that. That is a legitimate way to read Genesis 1. The word could mean In one big period of time, God created the world, the water, and the light. And then in some next big period of time, God did what took place on the second day. Still other Christians would indicate that Genesis 1 is poetic symbolism. Now, before you call me crazy, let me finish. These believers would say that the genre of writing is intended to communicate truth symbolically. In other words, it's intended to say God created the world. But it's not intended to say exactly how he did that. Now, still others would say, well, the idea behind Genesis is correct, but it really gets all the particulars wrong. Now, I've just given you four different views. The only one that we could definitively say without question is beyond the bounds of what Scripture teaches is the last one. So in other words, the only one of those views that should not be within the stream of Orthodox Christianity is the one that says, well, you can't really trust the Bible. The big idea is there's a God, and beyond that, it doesn't make any difference what you think. That's not true. But it is very possible that Genesis 1 is describing 24-hour days. It is also very possible that it's describing periods of time. The word day is used in the Bible both ways. So there's a lot going on here, and it's not near as simple as just a cursory reading. Because if you read it just cursorily, you can't get past the first two chapters of the Bible without being massively confused. Because it seems like the second chapter says things different and in contradiction to the first chapter. So, I believe that ought to tell us, read carefully, slowly, prayerfully, cautiously, and humbly. And do it in community. So Carson says, there's more ambiguity to the interpretation of these chapters than some Christians recognize. Now, second, there is more ambiguity in the claims of science than some scientists recognize. So many authors would claim to be writing from a purely objective scientific viewpoint. But these authors are actually not as unbiased as they might seem. They believe the scientific method trumps everything. So if you take a class at ASU in the history of origins department, 
you will find not simply black and white science. You will find in a, a particular interpretation of data. Correct? So it's not unbiased. Many of you in the room who are younger than me or are from China grew up in an environment that taught you and taught me what we might call philosophical materialism. It is a particular worldview. It is not an unbiased um, height of intellectualism that trumps everything else. It is a particular way of looking at the world. The story we were raised in says that everything that exists is space and energy and matter and time and that nothing exists outside of that. That cannot be proven by science. So science sets up a worldview in which it says you can only put stock in that which you can prove. There's tremendous benefit to that, correct? Any of you that have gotten sick and are better because you went to the doctor and got medicine ought to say, yes, there is benefit to science. I'm still trusting in it for my foot, but I'm about to give up. There is great benefit to the scientific method. The world is better because of the scientific method. But the scientific method cannot prove that there isn't a spiritual realm. It is beyond the scope of what it ought to do. Science offers no authoritative, widely accepted answer to questions like, where did the Big Bang come from? What made up the matter that made the Big Bang? There is no current accepted, widespread academic answer to that question. It gives no and can give no scientific proof that God does not exist or didn't cause that. My college biology professor, who was by no means a Christian, uh, sometime I could tell you privately some other things he said. But when we got to evolution in biology, this man who had never uttered anything about God prior to that moment, said, creation out of nothing that then evolves and mutates into intelligent human life is ridiculous. It takes more faith to believe that than to believe in creationism. That's what my secular biology professor taught. My point here is not religion is good and science is bad. That's not what I'm attempting to tell you. Rather, debates about origin are complex. They're complex in the Bible. And they're complex in science. There's not fundamental agreement. But that doesn't mean the two cannot peacefully and wonderfully coexist. We would do well to set aside assumptions and try to study the data on its own merits. I fear sometimes that Christians who love the Bible are an endangered species. But it doesn't have to be that way. You can absolutely love the Bible and love school and learn science and learn it well and hold tightly to a view of Scripture that says whatever the author originally meant is absolutely true in 100% of the circumstances. Are we good? All right. Now, if you are incredibly troubled by what I've just said, understand I didn't say Genesis 1 and 2 are not true. I said it may be more difficult to interpret them than you might have first thought. Not because we need to keep Christianity from becoming extinct because science is going to trump it, but because if you read Genesis 1 and then read Genesis 2, you must say there's more going on here than simply an orderly account that then somehow in the second chapter says things happen differently than in the first chapter. You just got to read it carefully. Now, 
I like what Francis Schaeffer says about how to get out of this debate. Or what is a way forward? And I'm going to try to use his method. He says, what is the least that Genesis 1 could be saying for the rest of the Bible to make sense? Are you following that? In other words, what's the bare minimum that it must actually mean in Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 and 4 for the consistent message of the Bible to be coherent and accurate? Because if you read the Bible at all, you'll find creation comes up all the time. It's not just Genesis 1 and 2. It is the basis upon which God says, you must do what I say because he's the creator and we're the created. So what is the least Genesis 1 and following must say for the whole view of creation in the Bible to be coherent and consistent? That's what I'd like to try and answer in our remaining time. So I'm going to list about seven things that Genesis 1 must be saying. All right. First thing is, God simply is. It doesn't say where God came from. It doesn't say what he was doing prior to Genesis 1. He just appears. He's just there. Now, if you're like I was as a teenager and struggled to believe God even exists, then get good literature. Read the Bible carefully with another Christian. Pray for answers. Because Genesis 1 doesn't start with an apologetic of where God came from doesn't mean there are not very good answers to that question. Again, Christianity doesn't say, turn off your brain and then you can start following this book. It says the exact opposite. It says, turn it on, plug it in, rest and then use it. All right, the second thing that we find in Genesis 1 is with infinite power, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1 and 2 followed this pattern. God said, and it was so. God said, and it came to be. Friends, what if your story was shaped not mainly by what you've done and what's been done to you, but by a God of that kind of power? What if you looked at your life through the lens of there is a God who simply can speak words and things happen? What place would fear have in your life versus faith if you actually, not just with your mouth, but in your heart, believed that that God exists and he's good and whatever happens, he's in control and he can say whatever he wants and it's going to come about. That's the God of the Bible. A third thing Genesis 1 and 2 must say is that everything God made was good. Friends, there's a sense inside of you that things are messed up in the world. And hopefully, there's a sense inside of you that you are messed up. Why is that there almost universally? It's there because... We are people made in the image of God. And therefore, we understand that things are not the way they're supposed to be. And I'll come back to that in a minute. A fourth thing Genesis 1 and 2 say is that God's creation proclaims God's glory. Sometime this week, look at Psalm 19. It says that the heavens declare the glory of God. Friends, you and I exist to make much of God by being in relationship with God. From the very beginning, that's what the the Bible says. A fifth thing we find here is that people are made in the image of God. In fact, out of everything that God made, only people are said to be like God. So look at verse 26 of chapter 1, Genesis 1, 26. This is the account of where people came from. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. 
So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Friends, this means that people matter. People have intrinsic value. It means that you have a reason to live. It means the question of why are you here is now answered. Regardless of where you've been and what you've done, regardless of your IQ level, regardless of your attractiveness, regardless of how much education you have, regardless of what's been done to you, regardless of how much money you have or how you choose to smell today, that is a choice you make. Friends, people matter. You matter. You are made in the image of God. Now, what does that mean? People have been writing about that for a long, long time. But let me give you two images just to get at the sense of what's being said here. The first is a mirror. What do you do when you look in a mirror? I don't want the specifics. What do you do? You see your reflection. God says that you are made to mirror him. That something of who God is, is what you get when you look in the mirror. And that when you see another person, in a sense, you're seeing a mirror of who God is. Now, that can't mean that the way you look represents God. Because God's spirit, he does not have a body. So it must mean something more than that. You see, Genesis 1 has to be interpreted carefully. Let me give you some sense of what that means. When you tell the truth, when you love, when you're merciful, when you're sacrificial, you're being like God. You're mirroring or echoing something of who God is so that the world can get a sense of him. Isn't that beautiful? Another picture we could use is that of an ambassador. An ambassador represents a country. We represent God by doing certain things like him. So God says to steward the earth, to take care of it. God says to relate to him. God says to live in community with each other. When we do all of those very simple, normal, everyday things in life, When you go to work and you do it well, helping to build a good society, not good morally, but a place that's um, functioning as a society should, then you are being an ambassador of God. You're doing something as though God would do it. That's what God told Adam to do, and it continues to be what he tells us to do. It's a really wonderful thing. What would happen if when you looked at someone else, you thought about them? Not they're ugly, they're fat, they're beautiful, they're handsome, they clearly have money, they're well kept. But there's someone made to reflect God. And how can I encourage that in them? How can I bless them when I see it? How do I receive from them in a way that's appropriate? It would turn all of our interactions upside down. Number six, it says that we are made male and female in God's image. Now, we don't have much time here, so just a few comments. Genesis 1 and 2, shout... Man and woman, you are both made of God's image. It goes out of its way to say that. And it says it repetitiously. Contrary to the destructive lives of, lies of our day, human beings are not asexual beings. That is not somehow a disconnected part of you. There's more than just body parts that makes us men and women. It strikes down to the core 
of who you are as a person, that you're made as a man or a woman. God has given us sexuality and that has much more to do with just who are you sleeping with. It has to do with who you are in your very makeup. Friends, both men and women are needed. Both are made in God's image. Both are valuable. Both are equal. Both are not the same as the other. There's a tremendous, beautiful mystery there that I am particularly excited about the ways in which Church on Mill can demonstrate and show the world that there is a better way to live than what our broader society is now embodying. We don't have to take an aggressive, hostile, fighting posture towards the world that says you are an asexual being. There is no male or female. Those are gender Gender is a social construct. Instead, we can simply be godly men and women. And if we do that, we will be presenting a tremendous message of who God is. Because that's part of the way God's made us. Finally, we are creatures, not the creator. Friends, many answers to the questions we began in this sermon with are answered simply by that. We're creatures, not the creator. That means we're utterly dependent on God. Food, life, air, future, health, abilities, dreams, everything is all wound up in who God is and what he's doing. It also means that we're morally accountable to God. Unlike anything else that God's made, we will answer to him. He's our creator. Now, how does all this relate to fear? Well, let's go back to worry. If I am someone chronically consumed by worry, it may simply be that I'm thinking of myself as creator, not creation. It may be that simple fact. I've got to make it happen. I am the solution. I must fix every problem. That's the stuff of creator, not the stuff of creation. If I see that I'm dependent on God and in a community of faith I learn to pray and ask God to provide and then trust Him, then that fear is going to go away. I'm not as convinced that fears are all that complicated as I was in December before we began this process together. So in closing, friends, you're not an accident. You're a gracious demonstration of the power of God. Your value is rooted in not what you do or who you know or how much you have or how much you weigh. Your value is not based on your marital status or what degree you earn. Your worth and value is inherent because you're a human being made in God's image. Life is about following Him as Creator and doing what He says. So quit trying to be the Creator and trust the God who is. Now, here's a little hint about where the story's headed. Does anybody know what the word Eden means? Eden means delight. The first place that God put human beings was a place called delight. The delight of Eden was not so much that they were walking around naked. It wasn't so much that There wasn't any pollution. It wasn't so much that there was free food everywhere they looked. Although all of those are good things. The delight of Eden was the presence of God and the innocence of being in relationship with him. Next week, we're going to talk about delight being lost. That's the fall. But the entire remainder of the Bible after that after Genesis 3, is about Eden being restored. It's about God's creation reaching its fullness in Christ. It's about delight being brought back. One scholar put it like this. What Eden was in potential, the new Jerusalem is in full. Jesus Christ is the very center of humanity reaching its fullness. So that's the story we're going to cover, and it's going to be wonderful. The next time you look up at the stars at night, 
and you're amazed again at the vastness of the universe. Remember, God is the creator. And he created not only those amazing stars, he created you. He created that person you're fighting with right now. He created that boss you don't care for very much. He created that spouse that isn't doing what you want them to do. He created that child you're having to clean up after. The next time you're in a really rough spot in life and you don't know if you have the strength to get through it. Remember, the God who made that can get you through anything. The next time you're hiking in the mountains or fishing in a river, I don't know where you do that, or watching a sunset, remember, God created those things. They tell us that he's powerful. They invite us to pray and to worship. The next time, if you wonder your life really matters, if there's any reason for you to get out of bed, remember God created you. He loves you. He's made you to mirror him. He's made you as his ambassador. The next time you find yourself in a sea of people at the mall or at a game, remember every single person you see is created in the image of God and is worth your respect. They are your equal. And they need Christ. Let's pray. As I pray, Logan, would you come? God, we are people who are asking the question, where did we come from? Why are we here? What makes up a good life? What is life about? And God, whatever Genesis 1 and 2 mean, they definitely mean that you made everything there is, that you're in charge, and that you are good. Help us to see life and people and ourselves this week in light of that and through the power of the resurrected Christ, treat them with love and respect. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.